I'd like to begin the talk this evening with a poem from Izumi Shikibu, who wrote, Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. This poem, and especially this last phrase that she writes, no part left out, is a very famous uh, phrase in Zen practice. In some sense, it epitomizes Zen practice, and maybe all Dharma practice. But ultimately, there is no part that we leave out. And a little bit in that spirit, uh, that's the spirit of the talk tonight, is to talk about a part of practice, a part of our lives, that often doesn't get talked about in the Dharma, or doesn't, maybe doesn't get talked about enough, um, which is sexuality. And um, I'd like to say a few things to preface the talk. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is that I'm not an expert. I'm not a sex expert. I'm not a sex <laughs> authority at all. You know, I've had a little bit of experience and you know, um, some positive, some negative, like, you know, like everything. Um, but I'm not speaking from that perspective as some kind of expert around sexuality. Um, more, I'm, I, my hope is, um, and I'm going to talk about it over two weeks, this week and next week here at Spirit Rock. And this week, mostly, what I hope to do is give you an overview, and I'll say more about that. But what I've noticed in talking about sexuality and giving this talk a few different places, or these series of talks a few different places, is I tend to offend somebody. <laughs> and it's... It's not a bad thing at all. That's, that's okay. Dharma often offends people one way or another. But this um, is a, sometimes it's very um, personal, the feeling of being offended. And it makes sense considering how personal our sexuality is and what a deep identification we have with our bodies and with our gender and with our sexuality. And so I apologize out front if I offend you. There's no, I'm not uh, trying to offend anybody, but I am trying to offer some perspectives and views and um, thoughts and reflections that you might not hear generally in the Dharma or in Dharma talks or on a retreat. We'd probably never give this talk on a, on a retreat. Um, it's actually much more fitting for a Monday night at Spirit Rock or at my sitting group. Or originally it was actually given at a senior student's retreat that is not a silent retreat, but it's a training retreat that uses a lot of um, um, didactic material. But for people who had been practicing at least five years and had done at least 50 nights of retreat. How many here, people here don't fit that category? I just want to see. How many people haven't done five years? Good. Because I was talking, I was teaching this week in the Midwest, and my friend uh, who I was teaching with she said, you're not going to give that talk at Spirit Rock, are you? And I said, yeah. She said, you, you have to tone it down a little. 
I said, I don't think so. Marin County's pretty sophisticated. <laughs> so it's not really a triple X rated talk, but it is a, at least one X. We, you'll hear it's a few things. Um, when I first gave this talk at the Dedicated Practitioners Program, one of uh, the people there, she came up, she said she was really happy that we, we started talking about and investigating the whole realm of sexuality. She said this is one of the hardest parts for her. And how often do we get to talk about it as practice, to reflect on it, and really bring it in more fully, more completely, no part left out. And so that's really the spirit that I offer the talk in, which is that we can bring every part of our human life into our practice. And I don't believe there's dharma practice that leaves out any part of our human life. Now that said, there's a lot of controversy around sexuality and even things like dividing the room in half. Um, uh, that often, when I, when I came to my sitting group and I said, I'm, you know, next week I'm going to start two weeks on, on um, sexuality and when you come in, you know, we're going to divide the room in half. Mm -hmm. And before I left that night, people were coming up to me telling me they were offended that I was dividing the room in half. For some very good reasons, there were very good reasons, totally, and I'll say more about them later, but that's how sensitive the topic can be. And when I.B. Horner, who was the woman who translated the Pali canon from Pali to English, first translated in the um, early part of the last century, she was so offended by what she read around sexuality in the Pali canon that she wouldn't translate some parts of it from Pali to English. I just want you to know where we're headed here. Um, and, and she wouldn't translate it because it was too explicit around sexuality. And what she did in order to, to translate it and offer it was she translated it in, into Latin, which I thought was... So only people really trained in Latin could read the, the good parts. Um. <laughs> and so like I, I was saying, I'd like to provide first, this week especially, I'll do a full talk. Next week I'll do a shorter talk. This week I'd like to provide an overview of the, um, the teachings. And next week, I want to speak more personally about sexuality as practice and offer more time for conversation about it, questions or reactions, or if you're offended, please, let's talk about it. Um, but tonight, mostly I'm drawing from both Buddhist myth, uh, legend, teachings, uh, sutta, the, the, the Pali canon itself, and practices around sexuality. And one of the things you'll notice is it's a little, definitely a little more male-oriented than female-oriented. And it's partly because that's the way it comes to us. That the teachings originally were the Buddha and the monks. And it was a while before there were the nuns. And the nuns, and there's always been um, somewhat of a second-class role for the nuns in, in Buddhism. That's still something that women are challenging in all the Buddhist traditions. And here in the West, we've challenged it the most. 
and I think are, you know, evolving or maturing really well. But it's still a controversy in many parts of uh, Asia and in the Buddhist tradition. So uh, I'd first like to talk about the Buddha's birth and his sex life. How many people know about the sex life of the Buddha? Not too many. Isn't that interesting? A couple people. He was, he was uh, quite active, the Buddha. Very active. But first, just his birth even starts to um, shape some of the thoughts and ideas, uh, a sense of sexuality, which is he has a little bit of an immaculate conception. Uh, similar to the Western tradition. It said he descends one night from the Tushita heaven where he's been waiting to be born into his mother's womb. And there's no mention of any sexuality between his mother and his father. And his mother wakes up and she knows she's pregnant. And she, there's something special happening. And she says to her husband that at that point she wants to take the eight precepts, which includes the precept of celibacy. And he agrees, and it said from that point on, treats her as a sister or a mother. And so that's, there's no sexual life once the Buddha is in the womb. And there's a kind of purity around his um, gestation and then his birth. And even the fact that his mother dies, how many people know this, his mother dies, I think it's eight days after, seven or eight days after he's born. And most people don't know this about the Buddha. Um, but his mother died, and one of the ways it's talked about in the text is she died because it, it would be wrong for her to then lead a householder life, i.e. be sexual after birthing the Buddha. And so there's already some myth around sexuality just with the Buddha's birth. And then the Buddha, to give context, the Buddha's a prince. He's born to a high caste family. His father's the king, he's the prince. Princes had a really good life in India, you know, if the family had a little money, you know, and he lived a life um, of tremendous indulgence and hedonism. And so not only as he grew up and married did he have one wife, he had a number of wives and many concubines and pleasure houses. And so he wasn't just, um, you know, he got married and lived a monogamous life. That's not how life was uh, for, for a prince in India in that time. And his father also wanted, there, there's, um, oh, there's a wise man who comes at his birth and foresees his future and says to the king, he will either follow in your footsteps and be a great king, or he will be a great spiritual teacher. And the father wants him to follow in his footsteps, take over his job, right, when the king retires. And so he starts to do all these things to kind of um, weave him into the world that his father knows so he'll be really attached to it. He won't want to be a spiritual teacher. And one of the things he does is kind of build these beautiful sporting places for him and create this uh, a little bit of a erotic haze or narcotic kind of a narcotic haze of love. It said, the king had a special <clears throat> chamber of love constructed for Gotama Buddha, Gotama Siddhartha at that point, decorated with erotic art and illuminated with subdued light like that of the hazy autumn sun. And when I read this, I always think of Las Vegas or something. <laughs> um, 
captivated, captivated by sexual extravagance, the prince spent his days and nights in continual dalliance, experiencing every imaginable, imaginable sensual delight of heterosexual intercourse with the beauties of his vast harem, and when he tired of them with the professional goddesses of love in the neighboring pleasure groves. This is the Buddha's early training. Is uh, <laughs> quite quite sensual, and in one of the teachings, generally the teaching of how the Buddha turns and leaves the the palaces and the royal life, is that he sees someone. He sees what's called the four heavenly messengers. He sees someone who's ill, someone who's old, someone who's dead, and then he sees a renunciate. And because of the shock of seeing old age illness and death, and then the inspiration of seeing a renunciate, he decides to leave his life as he knows it and seek awakening. Now there's a whole other myth and teaching in Buddhism that that was not exactly how it happened. But here's how it happened. That one night, following what was evidently a frenzied orgy, Gotama awoke from a troubled sleep and took a hard look at the harem harem women surrounding him in the love chamber, lying about in torn clothing and disheveled hair with their ornaments, tiaras, and musical instruments strewn about, the girls were far from a pretty sight. Some were naked, contorted into unseemly positions with arms and legs askew. Others were snoring loudly with their mouths agape, <laughs> mumbling to themselves in their sleep or drooling in a drunken stupor. In the lurid light of the oil lamps, the girls had lost all their allure. For the first time, Gotama noticed the blemishes or flaws of each girl. And in reaction to such meaningless excess, he felt as if he had come to, a, to, come to in a cemetery full of the living dead. And, and then it goes on to say, his re, with his reaction, Gotama now felt turned felt toward his life of frivolity and hedonism in the palace Gelv... Excuse me, I'm not reading it well. Let me say it again. The repugnance <clears throat> Gotama now felt towards his life of frivolity and hedonism in the palace galvanized the prince, and he resolved to flee this, quote, swampland of sex that very night to seek the path of awakening. So this is an alternative understanding of what motivated the Buddha to awakening, which is that he indulged himself, we could say, to such an extent that he'd had it, and that was enough. And to be honest, maybe some of us have done that too. You know, really, I mean, some of us grew up during the 60s and certain times, and, you know, it was part of the culture, a part of what happened for us. And that at some point it felt like, this is really not making me happy. And it's really that simple. And it's when we see that the indulgences of life don't make us happy, that we turn toward to look for something more meaningful, something deeper, something that will really provide us with that sense of um, <coughs> meaning about what we're doing here. And the Buddha said, he said, there was not a single sensual joy which I have not enjoyed. He did, he did it all. 
And what's interesting in hearing this, in hearing the hedonism of the Buddha, and that he's tried everything that could be imagined, um, that in one of the Buddhist texts, the uh, Buddha Charita says that each potential Buddha must taste all sensual pleasures prior to illumination. In other words, following in the footsteps of the Buddha. So if you haven't done this yet, <laughs> it may be part of the way to enlightenment because it was part of the Buddha's way to enlightenment. Now the Buddha, leaving the palace, cutting his hair, giving away his jewels and his beautiful clothes, takes up the robe and begins to live the life of a renunciate of his time and his era. And there were a lot of renunciates in the forest. Actually, there's still a lot of renunciates, sadhus, wandering sadhus in India. You can go to this day and uh, men and some women, but more men will, you know, are wandering around basically in a loincloth doing very severe ascetic practices. I've seen people who had their hand up for 20 years and the nails grow through the hand. Or you see people who haven't, haven't slept um, sitting down or lying down for 20 years. Or there's a number of practices I won't go into detail about. Um, it's actually a quite, quite a fascinating video called Kings with Straw Mats that describes a kumbha mela where all the wandering sadhus every 12 years come together for a mela, for a gathering, and create a city of a million people, the sadhus and the people who serve them. And um, you can see a lot of images of the various, you know, people lying on nails or walking on shoes made of nails so their feet are on the nails, etc., etc. And the Buddha had said, then now did this big swing, right? He did every sensual practice that he could. Now he did every ascetic practice that he could. And it said at some point he was living on one grain of rice and the gods looked down on him and they couldn't even tell if he was alive or dead. They couldn't tell his skin color and they, he just looked, he looked bad, the Buddha. And, and he really moved into the strong ascetic antibody phase of his practice. And I would say also anti-feminine at that point, very warrior, macho, I'm going to deny the body to realize awakening. And the turning point for him in terms of discovering the middle path is that he realizes this doesn't work, this strong asceticism, this harshness towards the body, it's not working. He's going, he's having a lot of, um, you know, uh, wild states of consciousness. I mean, everything that anybody could teach, he's experiencing different absorption states, etc. But it doesn't bring him the freedom that he's looking for. And he realizes he needs to eat. He's actually going to die. And the, the, what comes of, at that point is a milkmaid who offers him rice milk. And so it's the feminine archetype now that actually saves the Buddha and, and allows him to see the wisdom of not indulging on either side, not just falling off into hedonism, but not falling off into asceticism. Um, and he discovers the middle path, which is a more integrated, a more holistic understanding of the body and the needs of the body and heart and mind in order to awaken. 
And so liberation is preceded by this more compassionate relationship to our bodies. Of course, the image of the milkmaid, young, kind of nubile milkmaid, is the, is the woman, the feminine, who saves him. And then he's enlightened. And in his enlightenment, if you'll notice, it's hard to tell in some of these, some of the statues, but he has what's called the 32 marks of a great man. And one of those marks has to do with his genitals, which is that his genitals were permanently sheathed. Oh, there's two parts to his, the 32 parts of the great man in terms of the genitals. One is that he had very large genitals, it said, but they're permanently sheathed like, like a stallion, and so they're withdrawn. So one of the interesting things, if you see Buddhist statues, you never even see a hint of his genitalia. And the word Buddha itself, Bud, Bud, is, um, is neither male nor female. So I think that's an interesting piece to reflect on. In some way, he's not really so masculine at that point. He's a little bit neither in, in his awakening, or that Buddha itself is genderless. And so he's awakened, he's gone through his hedonistic period, his ascetic period, now he's discovered the middle way, liberated, totally, completely liberated, and he begins to teach, and people want to study with him. And so he starts the Sangha, and he starts the dispensation of the Buddha. And as he started it, all these First, his, some of his old friends who he'd practiced with join him. Then other young men start joining him. And there's no rules at all. The Buddha starts with no rules. He only makes rules when something seems off or weird or not helpful or, yeah, basically unskillful. All the first rules are about sexuality. So you understand what that implies? It means somebody broke the rule because there was no rule. And then the Buddha made a rule. And um, the first rule is to um, be celibate. And then people keep breaking this rule in a number of different ways. Um, and, and there's an interesting question here about the middle path. Why be celibate? if sexuality is normal or natural. And there were two reasons that I found. Let's see if I can find them. One is that um, they wanted to have a uniform community. And um, they didn't allow uh, people to have sexual intercourse because it, it would have made them no different from everybody else. And they would have then had the responsibilities of intercourse, children, family, etc., etc., etc. And they were trying to do something different. Um, and, and to do it, and also it would encourage marriage, etc. And the Buddha was encouraging people to go into homelessness, to really let go of everything. And so um, Buddhism doesn't um, consider sex outside, or didn't, let's say that, sex outside of marriage wholesome, so you couldn't have a monastic order where people are just having sex. 
that wouldn't have been considered uh, virtuous. And if they were getting married, it kind of would undercut the whole sense of community for a monastic order. And then the other was the idea on a doctrinal level that the aim was to move everything that impeded inner development, inner progress, and to achieve uh, selflessness and to let go of everything. So to even let go of sexuality. Now, it's kind of amazing to read all the first rules that come down around sexuality. Um, people having sex all kinds of different ways. You know, with men, with women. Um, then there's rules about no foreplay, um, no sex with animals. There's a, there was a story about there's a monkey who every time the monkey gets around the uh, monks, he, the monkey bends over. Finally, they figure out why the monkey's bending over. Then there's rules against having sex with corpses. Rules with having sex against pieces of fruit. With... But I want you to consider the, you know, especially if all of us remember being 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 24, 30, 40, However, you know, whatever it might be, sometimes there's really a lot of hormones, especially at the young ages. And so all these young men who are trying to be celibate, and they're not succeeding, and the Buddha keeps, and they keep pushing the bounds, they keep pushing the edge. And so the Buddha keeps making rules. One of the ones that I thought was pretty fascinating, here I'll tell you. This is a monk, Udayan, he's traditionally the bad monk. He's getting dressed with his ex-wife. A lot of these men leave their wives, and of course the wives come around and actually tempt them, at least it's said in the text. And so Udayan is getting uh, dressed with his uh, ex-wife, oh, who's now a nun, this is when the nuns come, and he got excited and he ejaculated onto his robe. So his wife, she's his ex-wife, right? She's cleaning the robe, right, for him and wiping them between her legs to dry. That's what it says. And, and she got pregnant. So there's no rule, there's no rule against that, you know, right? But they made a rule against that. Meanwhile, he gets punished for not cleaning his own robe. There was a rule against that. So it's a scene, you know? I mean, imagine if, you, if we were all 22, you know, and we're all trying to be celibate, and we're out in the woods, and there's nothing to do but <laughs> meditate and meditate, basically. <laughs> and you start to become friends with people, or, you know, you're hanging out a little bit with somebody. And <laughs> um, I mean, you see, actually, you see this in monastic environments to this day. Uh, there's eros. Everywhere there's eros. If you, that's the truth. There's eros. There's no getting away from it. Even on a silent meditation retreat, you might not talk to anybody. You might not really have an eye contact. But sometimes you'll feel this energy and this vibe and this aliveness and this eros. And it's normal. The eros is normal. Um, but for the Buddha's purposes, it wasn't the way to go. And so he could be very harsh. This is one of the harshest things you'll read in the Pali Canon. Um, 
as he was um, disciplining one of the monks, he said, it is better that your penis enter the mouth of a poisonous snake or a pit of blazing coals than enter a woman's vagina. I mean, that's right, totally misogynist. Um, now, sometimes some Buddhist scholars will say, well, we don't know if the Buddha really said that or if that got written in later by more misogynist uh, tradition in the monastic. We don't know, actually. But this is what we have that we also, the same place where we get the teachings on mindfulness or on loving kindness, etc., etc. And I, and I say these things, sometimes people get offended that I actually say this out loud, I shouldn't say it, people. But when I found it in the Polytext, I was shocked. I mean, I was really shocked. What I found valuable is seeing what was said, what's put out, what's in the text, and then what is true for me, or what works for me, what is of value for me, and really learning how to discriminate that from the text and from the teachings, and from any teacher that you hear. To really begin to make the Dharma your own is to know it and then see what's true for you or what works for you. Um, and not to just take it all in like, oh, this is all the truth, but to really see for yourself. And that's one of the Buddha's teachings I love the best is his teaching about make the teaching your own. Now, there were a few ways that the Buddha taught to work with sexuality for the monastic order. Um, one way was through um, a kind of reflection where you reflect that each person, um, see them, instead of seeing them as a sexual object, see them as your uh, father or mother or sister or brother, to see them in a more, a less erotically charged way. He also um, offered and offers still to this day the teachings on what's called the unbeautiful nature of the body. So that you don't just see the surface, but you actually reflect on the whole body. What's actually here when you're seeing somebody and you're attracted to them? Well, there's the surface and there's the beauty and the shape and the form. And then there's what's underneath. Oh, there's like the muscles and the fat. And then there's... Well, the blood and the liquids of the body and the fluids and then there's the organs in the body and then there's all the things that are inside the body, the urine and the feces and the etc. And to begin to see that, begin to see that as you actually see somebody. And so you're seeing something more fully, you're seeing more fully what sits here as a way to begin to help disidentify from the uh, forces of um, hormones, of uh, desire, of lust, etc. And then if that fails, he talks about um, mindfulness as being very helpful. <laughs> so Ananda comes to him and says, well, what should we do? How should we behave if we run into women? And the Buddha says, don't look at them. <laughs> and he says, but what if we must look at them? And the Buddha says, don't speak to them. And then he says, but what if we must speak to them? And the Buddha says, keep wide awake. <laughs> Be mindful. And what you'll hear is a kind of um, warrior attitude around sexuality, especially in coming from the monastic tradition. Um, a really, um, a little bit from the ascetic tradition and this kind of um, 
attitude of conquering our sexuality, an attitude of conquering. And so here's, this is from Ajahn Chah talking about working with sexuality as a young man in the forest. He said, and, and he's having, he said at one point in the meditation practice, sexual desire rose so intensely that he could not concentrate his mind. And he writes, he says, regardless of the position, walking or sitting, that I took in meditation, an image of the female genitals kept appearing. Lust was so strong that it almost overwhelmed me. Anybody ever notice this on a long retreat? That it, it happens. Lust comes very, can come very strong, be very, it's vivid. And it's very strong, very powerful. And it's normal. That's one of the things I want to make sure I hope to convey. It's very normal. Uh, as part of a meditation practice, at some point, that strong feelings of desire, of lust, of sexuality. Actually, some people have orgasms sitting on, just sitting on the cushion. More women than men, actually. More women than men. But, and, and not doing anything. Just sitting. Um, lust was so strong that it almost overwhelmed me. I had to struggle hard to fight off the intense feelings and the images. Struggling over lustful feelings was as difficult as battling the fear of ghosts in the forest cemetery. It was so intense, intense that it was impossible to do walking meditation. As the penis became sensitive when it came into contact with the robe, I requested a walking meditation track to be made deep in the forest where I could not be seen. In the dark forest, I rolled up my lower robe all the way to the waist, tied it, and kept it up with my walking meditation. I battled the defilement, again, this is the attitude a lot, for 10 days before the lust and the images died down and disappeared. So this is the kind of, you know, warrior conquering sexuality. And, and there's a place for it in some sense, I hope not so much in this conquering sense, but in seeing that we don't have to be at the mercy of our sexuality. I think that's an important insight that can happen just by sitting with our sexuality, letting it be here and not acting on it. If you're on, and this generally will come at some point on a long retreat. And, and beginning to be aware more, not so much of the object, but of the amazing energy of the life force, of the eros of life, which is both moving through us and which we are a product of. This, this beautiful eros of life that produces all things, the flowers, the trees, the plants, the animals, us. And that we are also, an ex we are both, we feel and we um, express at times, but we are also an expression of. <laughs> So, now I'm going to shift from the Theravada, from the original monastic tradition, to the Mahayana. And in the Mahayana, you find a more, the Mahayana developed um, in, mostly in China and Japan and then into Tibet. And you find a more sex-positive um, um, sense of Dharma practice. And a, more of an understanding that sexuality is one of the energies of life and part of practice and becomes an expression of dharma. And it's summarized in this koan. Teacher addressing the assembly said, In order to know the way in perfect clarity, there is one essential point you must penetrate and not avoid. 
the red thread of passion that cannot be severed. Few face the problem and it is not at all easy to settle. Address it directly without hesitation for how else can liberation come? And so this red thread of passion, our sexuality, the eros of life, the, the aliveness of the whole universe is expressed in the human being, or one expression, which is sexuality. And so then you start having monks who have sex, and in the Zen tradition, the priests can marry. And so you have monks who write poems about sex, like this, from EQ. He says, Rinzai's disciples never got the Zen message, but I, the blind donkey, know the truth. Love play can make you immortal. The autumn breeze of a single night of love is better than a hundred thousand years of sterile sitting meditation. <laughs> it's a different flavor now, right? And he writes poems about genitalia. genitalia. He says, a man's root, eight inches strong, it is my favorite thing. <laughs> if I'm alone at night, I embrace it fully. A beautiful woman hasn't touched it in ages. Within my underwear, there is an entire universe. <laughs> or a woman's sex. It has the original mouth, but remains wordless. It is surrounded by a magnificent mound of hair. Sentient beings can get completely lost in it, but it is also the birthplace of all the Buddhas of the 10,000 worlds. It's beautiful. EQ. There's also certain archetypal images that now come in the Mahayana. One of the most famous um, uh, symbols of a liberated human being is Vimalakirti. There's two, I'll say two, Vimalakirti and um, Srimala, male and female. And they're lay disciples of the Buddha. So now the archetype switches from a monastic archetype as the I ideal to a lay a householder archetype. And Vimalakirti is really well known for uh, challenging and um, teasing and um, threatening the monastics. The Buddha's greatest disciple, he comes as a, as a lay person and says, oh, you need to be in the marketplace to see, let's see how your awakening really is. Let's see what happens if you come get married and have some kids and go to work. That's, that's where we'll put the metal to the pedal, the rubber to the road. And um, I don't know if I have it. Oh, I know where it is. Hmm. This is um, Srimala. And um, she was a queen who became enlightened. And she also challenges uh, Subhuti. Subhuti is often the foil in many of the Buddhist stories. And uh, she, she tells him, I am an emanation from the Buddha nature, originating in emptiness, yet manifest in the body of a woman. And he says, well, are you married? You know, because traditionally women need to be married. And she says, I've had many, many husbands. 
If a man enjoys sensual pleasures, I give him all he desires and then enlighten him to Buddhism through passion. Isn't that immortal? Sabuti questions. What I do is no different from what you do. When you request alms and provisions, a gracious patron gives them to you so that you can practice Buddhism. When a man needs something from me, I give him the object of his desires while awakening his Buddha nature. And she goes on to state that women, are, women better understand the na nature of sex, and that is why she is manifest as a female. And when Subhuti reports back to Buddha, the master informs Subhuti that the lady is really a very great bodhisattva, one who enlightens sentient beings by employing the skillful means of pleasure. And so you have this new image in the Mahayana of the bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva lives within the passions of the world and awakens within the passions of the world. There's also the emphasis on compassion. And so you have a story like this in the Zen tradition. Um, that there was an old woman in China who'd supported a monk for many years, 20 years. And she'd built a hut for him and fed him while he was practicing and meditating. And then she wondered, well, how is he doing? How is his practice going? And, you know, 20 years is a good amount of time to then check, see how somebody's doing. <laughs> and she obtained the help of a girl rich in desire, beautiful young woman. She said, go and embrace him, she told the girl, and then ask him suddenly, what now? Well, let's test this guy, she says. And the girl calls upon the monk and without much ado caressed him and asked him what he was going to do about it. And he answers in a very Zen-like way. He says, an old tree grows on a cold rock in winter. Nowhere is there any warmth. And the girl returned and related what he had said. And the old woman exclaimed, she says, to think I fed that fellow for 20 years. He showed no consideration for your need, no disposition to explain your condition. He need not have responded to passion, but at least he could have evidenced some compassion. She at once went to the hut of the monk and burned it down. <laughs> so, you, you begin to get the flavor, how it changes a little in the Mahayana. What you also find with this emphasis on the bodhisattva, on compassion, on a, on a, a more human, in some sense, contactful uh, sense of practice, is you find uh, the rise, uh, where, where I found the rise of women, uh, as not as monastics, but as poets, who are both um, very involved with spirituality and sensuality, that they're not separate. And so Izumi Shikibu, who I started with, is known for both her spiritual consciousness and her intense eroticism in, in her writings, the spiritual understanding and this um, also erotic power that she infuses in her poetry. Yes. You know, and you can hear the combination of the understanding of the Dharma in a more uh, beautiful, poetic, erotic way. She says, the one close to me now, even my own body, these two will soon become clouds, 
floating in different directions. Or a woman named um, Yosano Akiko, uh, who said this, she writes, writes, again, talking to the monastic community, she says, you've never explored this tender flesh or known such stormy blood. Do you not grow lonely, friend, forever preaching the way? And then another poem by Yosano Akiko, concentrated so completely on each other, I can't tell us apart. You, the white bush clover, from me, the soft white lily. And so now you have an image of selflessness in lovemaking, in the, in the loss of self that happens and that's possible in sensuality, sexuality, in the eros of life. And then in the Mahayana also we have the Vajrayana tradition, which is known, um, probably most, most people know a, a bit about the sexual uh, views in terms of Tantra. And, and you have this poem from the sixth Dalai Lama who said, if one's thoughts towards the Dharma were of the same intensity of, as those of love, one would become a Buddha in this very body, in this very life. And it's true. <coughs> and so Tantra, which means web or weaving, bringing everything together, is almost an expansion of this idea of no part left out. Um, it expands the understanding that there are no poisons, that all the so-called poisons or the kalesas or the distractions uh, can be used in the service of awakening, that, that ultimately that energy is pure. That, and, and it's summed up somewhat in the phrase, samsara and nirvana are not separate, that they're not separate. Enlightenment happens here and is possible here at any time. And so you'll read some of the um, tantric texts, the Vajrayana texts will begin with this statement. Thus I have heard all the Buddhist teachings, all the teachings of the Buddha begin with that phrase when you read the scriptural teachings. Thus I, have I heard. When the Buddha was reposing in the vagina of his concert, he delivered this discourse. Okay, so everybody got that? <laughs> Again, that's a very different idea of the Buddha and his teaching. Um, now, one th I don't know a lot about Tantra. I know a little bit. I know a little bit about Buddhist Tantra and a little bit about Marin County Tantra, um, <laughs> which I'm sure there's a lot of people here who actually know a lot more than I do. But in Buddhist Tantra, mostly it's done symbolically. It's actually rarely that it's enacted physically. And so the tantra of um, mating and sexuality and using those uh, energies are mostly done through visualization. And um, I just like to mention that because, at least for myself, I thought that it was always inactive. But that's really much more of a rarity that you will find two practitioners at that level of practice where they'll be given those teachings to enact them physically, um, sexually. Now, in our time and place, I think it's interesting to just consider what's happened, in, let's say, in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. That 
as Buddhism moved to the West, of course, it met with this, at the same time, with the sexual revolution, really. That sexuality changed uh, pretty radically, it seems, after the 50s. That the whole attitude towards sexuality, towards the um, sense of uh, guilt and shame and judgment around all kinds of sexual um, acts and enactment has, you know, either greatly or slowly begin to dissipate. And so sex, sex meets the Dharma in America. It's just natural, of course. And so you have someone like Mahasi Sayadaw, in whose lineage we teach, that actually that's who authorized Jack and Joseph, Sharon, and I forget the other woman's name originally, to begin teaching. Jacqueline, Jacqueline uh, uh, Schwartz. And I actually have a picture of Mahasi Sayadaw in one of my rooms, um, sitting above Jack and Joseph and Sharon and Jacqueline after he had authorized them. Um, and Mahasi came. We have a retreat center on the East Coast that was founded in 74. Mahasi came and taught a retreat, a three-month retreat. And at some point during the retreat, um, he was taking questions, and a woman raised her hand. She said, well, uh, Sayadaw, um, what do you think about sex? And the Sayadaw, who mostly gave his talks behind a fan, right? And Mahasi was considered totally enlightened, one of the great beings of the planet of that time, and in the Buddhist world, really highly respected, teaches behind a fan, out of modesty. Um, he said, uh, uh, sex is um, base, gross, and disgusting. That was his response. And that, that's really, you know, East meeting West a little bit. Now, even more east, or west meeting east, we could say, is that at the end of the retreat, Mahasi's gone, and as part of the integration, we used to have what's called Dharma Follies. <laughs> so people do skits or sing songs or read poems or whatever, you know, it's kind of to relax after the retreat. So this woman got up and she did Mahasi. She got put on, you know, kind of pretended to have robes on and a fan. And somebody asked her, what do you think about sex? <laughs> and she said, sex is basic, engrossing, and worth discussing. <laughs> right? And this is how it is for us, really. And this is how, what it's like for Buddhism to come to the West. Well, you have Suzaki Roshi, who's got a student. He's very fierce Zen master, one of the fiercest. I think Suzaki's still alive. I think he's 96 now and still quite a curmudgeon. Um, and he's got a student there who's really getting into the practice and his wife's into practice a bit. And she's telling Suzaki he, he's getting more and more detached and he's getting more distant and he's withdrawing and etc. And so they're on a sashin and Suzaki has them both come for their koan, right? This is koan practice. And instead of, you know, does a dog have Buddha nature or what's the sound of one hand clapping, he, tell, he gives them a special koan. How do you discover the Buddha while making love? And so while the sashin goes on and people are getting more kind of tight or drawn or haggard, you know, sitting long hours, three or four times a day they're going off to study their koan. <laughs> And they're getting rosier and glowing and happier. 
or Suzuki Roshi at Zen Center, who really in the heart of the 60s, Zen, Zen Center is just blossoming in San Francisco. So it's really rocking. And he's getting a lot of questions about uh, sex. And so one of them is, is it necessary to have sex in order to have complete understanding? He was asked. And Suzuki said, well, maybe you shouldn't have too much sex, but maybe you shouldn't have too little either. <laughs> and then one student said, Roshi, I have a lot of sexual desire. When I sit, I just get more sexual desire. I try to concentrate on my practice, so I'm thinking of becoming celibate. Should I limit myself in this way? And Suzuki answers, he says, sex is like brushing your teeth. It's a good thing to do, but not so good to do it all day long. <laughs> and then here's one that I don't understand, but I really like it. It's a koan. It says, a girl wearing many strings of beads raised her hand, and when Suzuki asked for questions, she said, Suzuki Roshi, what is sex? What is sex? Suzuki Roshi answers, once you say sex, Everything is sex. <laughs> so if somebody really gets that, come and tell me later. <laughs> and then the person who wrote this, uh, Michael Chadwick, not Michael, what's his name? David Chadwick. Um, he's, he was about to become a monk. And he's right, sometimes um, the monastic forms would run headlong into 60s sexuality. And um, Suzuki said, since you're going to be ordained, it would be better if you don't have a girlfriend for five years. And that, that's the training still at Zen Center, not to have a relationship for five years. Suzuki said to me in his cabin at Tassahara, and David replies, oh gosh, Roshi, I don't think I can do that. I have a girlfriend here now. Didn't you know that? And Suzuki Roshi says, don't tell me, he said, averting his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> So, one reason why I like to divide the room at least once is just so you have the feel, a teeny bit, of what it what might be like to sit in a traditional Buddhist monastery in Asia where that's what happens. The room gets divided. Or even if you study with Goenkaji, who almost all the senior uh, Vipassana teachers in the West have studied with at one time or another and who teaches Vipassana, a certain form of Vipassana, very powerful, very great teacher. To this day, when you go to do a 10-day retreat, men are on one side, women are on another side. And um, if you go to IMS through, for the three-month course, they divide the room. And sometimes, I don't know if it's happened to... Uh, I don't know what the monastic uh, teachers do when they come here, if they divide it or not. I, I don't know. I haven't sat a monastic retreat at Spirit Rock. But it, it's done because um, there was a belief that it would help people to relax a little, not to be so aroused or so excited by people. And it's interesting the naivete that's there. Some of some, it's not totally naive, but there's a certain kind of uh, naivete around sex, gender, preference, etc., with that kind of division. And so, um, 
For some people, it's, of course, harder or more tempting, let's say, if you're homosexual. Um, but I thought it'd just be interesting just to feel it, to feel the energy. Sometimes people feel actually a lot safer dividing the rooms, dividing in this way. Sometimes people have never sat in a room with their own sex before where it's done like this. Sometimes men are often surprised that they really like it because it's often uncomfortable for men to be together. Um, so that's a, just a few thoughts on why to do this one time here at Spirit Rock, to just try this. Um, one of my teachers says, it's easy to get enlightened here and here. It's harder to get enlightened down here, <laughs> really. And I, think, I believe that's true, and that enlightenment has a physical dimension as well as a spiritual one. Buddhism, let's see, I've got a few minutes. I want to say some, a little bit more about homosexuality. I think Buddhism has all the misunderstanding that many, many religions have had traditionally around homosexuality. And to this day still, there's, there's teachings that personally I would not listen to and that we... Um, don't agree with at Spirit Rock. And even with the Dalai Lama, who I love dearly and think of as one of the most enlightened beings on the planet, um, upholds a certain traditional teaching about that sex using the hands or using the mouth or using the anus or anything but basically, you know, genital male to female sex is, is it's unwholesome, let's put it that way. And he'll say that, he says that. And it always amazes me, first of all, what, because of the, you know, what, is, what do people think heterosexuals are doing? You know, I mean, are they not using hands or mouths or other orifices or, you know, God knows what, first of all. And, and then just the, uh, you know, the misunderstanding, it seems, around sexuality. And so, we, and I mean the Insight Meditation community teachers, actually have a statement to address that. It's called the Buddha's Inclusiveness Statement. And it goes this way, as teachers of the Buddha's way in the West, we want to state publicly that we understand that the Buddha's teachings for lay people do not distinguish heterosexuality from homosexuality. And even the Dalai Lama acknowledges this. But he's somewhat, what I, the way I understand his action is he's somewhat bound by his tradition. And if he's too radical, he's already way too radical for many people in the Tibetan tradition. If he's too radical, it's too hard to maintain his authority. So we do not distinguish heterosexuality from homosexuality. We also understand that the traditional guideline the Buddha taught for sexual conduct among lay people refraining from causing harm to oneself or another applies universally to all sexual activity. We welcome, as the Buddha did, people of all sexual orientations, of all races, classes, origins, and physical abilities to our teachings and to the practices that liberate the heart. And I think it's important to state that publicly, periodically, that it be heard in addition to what is put out uh, in terms of what's unwholesome in the Buddhist world. Um, 
And last, last piece I'm going to say, and a little bit will lead into the talk next week, but I, I want to say just a little bit more about the Eros piece. Because I think we all know this, the Eros of life. And it often gets narrowed into just being sexual. And the way I'm thinking about it is sexuality, sexuality is one expression of this Eros, this life force that is beautiful and natural and is part of the actual movement and force of awakening. And um, if we begin to understand it a little broader, I think it helps contextualize the sexual energy and the beauty of sexuality as one expression of this eros, whether it be um, sexuality in, in the arts, in, in the expression of our intelligence or our creativity, or however it may come. Um, and I'm going to tell you my first kiss, which was, I was pretty young. I was about, maybe I was five. And, and um, this is a true story. And I was, it was in Detroit, growing up in Detroit, hot summer night. And somehow I was being allowed to stay out pretty late because the sun was setting. It was probably around 9 or 9.30 and I was out in the neighborhood. And it was warm and humid and really just this great feeling and beautiful reds, you know, the black night coming and the red sky and the pink. And I was with this girl who was a redhead, curly red hair, freckles everywhere, who I didn't know too well. I, like, I'd met her that day is what it, what I, is how I remember it. It's true. And she, in, she had a, a tomato, a whole tomato that she'd picked from her garden and she was eating it like an apple and I'd never seen anybody do that and I said something I said oh it's like an apple she said yeah it's great and she gave me a bite of this tomato fresh ripe tomato and I took a bite and as I was biting it she kissed me <laughs> so I hope you can hear the whole picture of that, the night and the warmth and the mystery and the ripe tomato. It's beautiful. And next week I'll start by telling you about my second kiss. <laughs> so we're out, we're out of time for now. But <laughs> Please. And again, I'll make room next week. We'll take a minute before we go. I have a couple things, to, other things to say. A couple announcements. Okay, this, you ready? This is the end of the evening. I'm going to do the end of the evening, and then we'll sit for a minute, and I'll ring the bell. Um, it says Eugene Cash will be teaching next week. Jack will be back July 21st. You can help us prepare for tomorrow evening's events by leaving the first three rows of chairs and stacking the remaining chairs in stacks of six that the volunteers will pick up. Don't leave any personal items behind. Look around your chair, etc. Drive carefully. Remember, as you leave, you cannot turn left. Even if you want to go left, turn right. And let's sit for just 30 seconds, please. And just shut your eyes for a moment, relax, very relaxed now. And feel the aliveness. Feel the eros in its relaxed breathing, 
human body form. May the goodness of our practice here tonight and the merit of our practice be shared and go out like ripples in the, on water, touching all beings in all worlds everywhere. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken to this mystery of life, birth and death, and freedom. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.